chapter of Acts. I believe with all my heart that I can say to you categorically that Jesus Christ did not come to the world to create an institution. He did not come into the world to create a 501c3 corporation. When we hear the word church, after 20 centuries, we so are tempted to fill in our own meanings of that based on our own cultural traditions of organizations and structures and hierarchies. But the word church, when Jesus first started it and used it, was the word ecclesia. Not a church word at all. Not a a spiritual word. It was a word that was used when a leader would call together a group of people so that he could give them instructions to send them out. It It was a government word. The governor of a city could call an ecclesia. It would kind of be our equivalent of a council. And they would come together and he would talk to them and give them instructions and then send them out to carry out those instructions. And so Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus Christ came to the world to start a movement. A movement of people called out by Him, instructed by Him, sent out by Him to speak the Word for Him. And beloved, over these next few months, you are going to hear that so many times because I need to hear it so many times. Until we begin to get in our minds this concept of what the church was originally designed to be. Now, does the church need structure? Of course it does. There was a structure in the earliest days of the church, but it was always like a scaffolding to help the movement to continue. But it was never designed to become more important than the movement it was designed to support. But what happened about the third century is the structure began to become more important than the movement. And ever since then, we have watched as God has moved and broken out, whether it was the Protestant Reformation, whether it was the Asbury Revival of 1970, whether it was the First Great Awakening in America and England, and other times that we could mention. But God is continuing to call us to be people of a movement. And a movement always comes out of a crisis. I was reading a book by Alan Hirsch, a book that Pastor Darrell and Pastor Greg and I are reading together, and I'm in a section where he's talking about understanding what it means to live literally on the edge of chaos. We're not going to talk about that today, but believe me, you're going to be hearing about that in the next few weeks as well. But he said, if you ever stop to realize that throughout Scripture, literally from cover to cover, it is constantly a story about God working with people in the midst of a conflict or chaos. Whether it was the sin in Noah's day, whether it was calling Abraham out of the sin of Ur to go to a place, whether it was Moses leading the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land, whether it was David or Samuel or, or, or Jeremiah or Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are built around the idea of people reacting under the Holy Spirit's leadership, under God's leadership to the circumstances around them and reaching out as people called together, instructed by their leader, and then sent out to do the work He has called us to do. When we can grasp that truth, everything we do as First Baptist Church will begin to change. Literally everything 
from this hour that we spend together to our Bible study groups on Sunday morning to our gospel communities on, during the week to what we do in our WMU and our student work and our team kids. Everything will begin to change as we understand what it is that God has called us out to do and to be. And so, it's only natural that we start in the book of Acts as we begin this journey. We're going to cover the first half of Acts. We started last week. We're going to cover the first half of Acts. We're going to take a break in the fall and go to Exodus. The book of Exodus and Leviticus, another story about people traveling, moving. And then we'll come back around Christmas time, go back to Acts, and finish it up next year. What I want us to do today is I want us to look at this account from Acts chapter 3. I asked Karen to read just the first part because it was a long passage. We're going to get into the whole chapter as we move together ahead in this passage. But I wanted you to be refreshed in your memory about this event and then we're going to also not only see the event, but also the explanation of the event and then see what it means to us. We don't know how long this event occurred after the day of Pentecost. I don't think it was like the very next day, but it was probably pretty soon after, the, after Pentecost had occurred. And the disciples were first beginning to understand and sink into them what it meant for them to truly be filled and dwelt with God's Holy Spirit. To understand what it was like not to have to sit and wait for the Holy Spirit to speak to them collectively, but to know that leadership moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, as the Holy Spirit guided and directed them. To understand what it meant to truly be people who had been given the authority of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago we were in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you go. And the link is that you go in my authority, in my name, carrying my authority with you as you go. I've called you together, I've discipled you, now I'm sending you out. And so one day, Peter and John were going up together at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for the afternoon prayers. Almost every Jew living in Jerusalem would go to the temple twice a day. Once in the morning at the third hour, and once in the afternoon at the ninth hour. There were also prayers at sunrise and sunset and at midday. But especially at the third hour and the ninth hour, everyone would stop what they were doing and they would go to the temple if they possibly could to pray. The sacrifices were made at that time. I'm sure Peter and John no longer depended on an animal sacrifice. They knew who the true Lamb of God was. But they went there to pray because they were still Jewish. They were Messianic Jews, we'd call them today. And they went to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. And as they were going in through the Corinthian gate, the beautiful gate it was called, they saw a crippled man who had just been placed there by some friends or family members to beg because it was seen as a good thing for a Jewish person to show compassion on those in need. This man had been crippled from his birth. Maybe he was uh, injured in delivery. Uh, we, even within most, some of us are old enough to remember days when oftentimes a child could, could get a leg or they could be breached and they didn't have the technology we have today and, and they would, they would get, their leg would get caught and it would get crumb, crushed or crippled and the child would be born mangled to live its life as a cripple. And this man, he'd been lame from birth. We find out later in chapter 4 he was 40 years old, so he had been this way a long, long, long time. And it made it a habit as an adult to go and beg for help from his brothers and sisters, the Jews. By the Corinthian gate, seen as the most beautiful gate in the temple. It was, uh, now this is not, this is not expository extravagance. This is 
historical documentation from the period. It was 75 feet tall, the gate was, and 50 feet wide. Now just try to imagine, I grew up with a fireman for a father. So the first thing my dad taught me, other than never stay in a hotel higher than the second floor, was the average floor of a building is 11 feet. So 75 feet high, basically is the height of a seven-story building. One gate, coated in precious Corinthian brass. More valuable even than the gold on the other gates. 50 feet wide it was. And this man was seated there, placed there by his friends and family because he could never go in that gate. He was deformed. He was not whole. He could not enter. He was unclean, perennially unclean because of his deformity. He could not enter into the temple. So he sat outside the gate every day as people went in to pray, asking, alms, alms, alms. How many times a day? Alms, alms. And he saw these two young men walking in together, talking, chatting. Alms. But they did something that most people didn't do. Most people would just reach inside their purse, their bag, and throw a couple of copper pennies in and walk on, never even look at the man. Not this man, not these two. It says in verse 4 that Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. And suddenly the story shifts. This is not just a story about a beggar man and two young men going to the temple to pray. Peter stopped looked at the man along with John and said to him, look at us. And here's what I believe happened in that moment. For those of us that have been through experiencing God by Henry Blackaby, there's a great line that Blackaby coined that has stuck with me all my life. He calls it the crisis of belief. There come moments in our lives as Christians when we come to a point and we say, okay, if I take one more step forward, nothing is going to be the same again. Every Sunday under the Holy Spirit's leadership, I do my best to surrender to him so that he can say to you, if you're at a crisis moment of belief, now is the time to make a decision. And I believe with all of my heart, I believe with all of my heart, that in that instant, Peter had a wrestling match. He had heard Jesus say to him, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go in my name, go in my authority, go in my power. He looked at that man. He knew what that man wanted, but he knew that was not what that man needed. The man did not need alms. That man needed healing. He needed to understand that in Jesus Christ, there was true relief for what was ailing him. But what if he said something and nothing happened? What if he said, stand up and walk, and the man just kept sitting there? Peter had to trust that what his father, excuse me, what his Lord had said to him was true. And so, he turns, looks at the man, has the man look at him, and he says to him in verse 6, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And he took him by the right hand. Peter had enough faith, not only to speak, but to say, I believe that God is going to do, that Christ is going to do what In his name and with his authority, he has told me to say. And he reached his hand. And the man, in flickering candle wick of faith, 
reached his hand up to Peter, and Peter took him by the hand, lifted him up, and immediately the muscles in his legs were whole, the bones were made straight, his feet and ankles were made to where he could walk again, and he stood up in full strength. Now that, my friends, is a miracle. But that is no more a miracle than a man who has lived for self and for sin and for self-pleasure and for self-desire to surrender his life to Jesus Christ, bow his head and in tears say, Lord, I want you to be in charge of my life. I want you to take over my life, forgive me of my sins and be the Lord and master of my life. And at that instant, be shifted from death into life. Now that is a miracle. And that's what happens every time the power of the Holy Spirit through the working of His people speaks to dead people. There was nothing that crippled man could have done on his own to have been healed. There is nothing that a dead person can do to make themselves come to life. I love that line in the song. It's your breath in my lungs. Who's Lord of the air? Not the prince of the power of the air. We know Satan's been here, but who is the Lord? Who created it? God did. And so when we take a breath, that is God's air that we're breathing. So why would we not praise him with the air we have in our lungs? He is Lord of all. He is ultimately sovereign over all things. He is the Lord of your unsaved friends. He is the Lord of all creation. The only difference between us and our unsaved friends is they've not yet acknowledged Him as Lord, and may never. But He is God of all. He is Lord of all. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, in fact. He jumped up, stood, started to walk, entered the temple complex with Him, walking, leaping, praising God. First time in His life He had ever stepped inside the door of that temple. And He did it in the power of Jesus Christ. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew who he was. They recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging, holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. There is the event. We'll come back in a few minutes and draw some applications, although I know your minds are already turning. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit has already given you applications, isn't he? You're already thinking, well, I know what that means. I know what that means in my life. Well, we'll get to it in a minute. We'll all come back to the same page. But let's show, let's look at how Peter explained what had happened. The first thing Peter noticed was a lot of the attention was not focused just on the man, but on him and on John. But probably most of all on Peter, because Peter's the one that said the word. And Peter said, now we need to get one thing straight right from the very start. Look what he says in verse 12. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? Why are you looking at us? Now that's a very interesting question that Peter asked. One that we need to camp on for just a second. Because I don't think there's a single one of us who are Christ followers in this room who would even begin to think that anything that we do is by our own power. We understand that anything we do is through God's power. He enables us. He empowers us. So we could easily ask the first part of that question. How in the world would you think that we had made him walk by our own power? But it's the second part we have problems with. Because 
we're tempted at least to think that the reason we're able to be used by God to do things is because we are more godly. We are more worthy. Beloved, I have news for you. It is not because of our godliness that God chooses to work through us. We need to strive for godliness, strive for holiness, work with the, power, with, with the Spirit's leadership to have these fruit around the room, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. But it is not because of any godliness that is inherent in us. It is purely because God chooses to work through us. And if God does anything in this town as a result of him pouring out his spirit on us as his people, it will not be because we're the biggest church or the wealthiest church or the smartest church or by any means the holiest church. It's because we will be the church that is most yielded to him guiding us and we respond in obedience and faith. So let's get it out of our minds right now that the reason God is using us is because we're all right and they're all wrong out there. The reason God is choosing to use us is because in spite of our sinfulness, he wants to use us because of his love for us and his love for those to whom we will be ministering. Now, it's interesting what Peter does next. He has to help them understand that what is going on is not something radically new and different. I mean, you can imagine, if, if you were an average Jew, you go to the temple every single day, this man Jesus had died. There was a few rabbles that said something about him being raised from the dead, but for the most part, it was just, you know, talk. And suddenly a man who'd been crippled from birth is brought to full healing and is leaping and praising God. And look, what he, look at the way he words it. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now we're going to stop right there for just a minute. We're going to jump down, then we'll come back and make it up. You see what he's doing? I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what Peter is doing. Peter is saying, hey, we're all Jews here. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, is our mantra it is our watchword we we talk about the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob over and over and over we know who this god is this god this one that every one of us worships this one that everyone that everyone believes is supreme is the one who ordained and anointed and exalted his servant jesus because you see beloved this wasn't just a religious statement for them this was part of their culture and this is where I just want to make an analogy. I don't want to overplay it, but I think there's some validity to it. And that is that this for a Jewish person, to this day it really is that way, Judaism is not just a religion, it's a culture. It's a lifestyle. It affects everything they do, the food they eat, the times they pray, uh, what they do on certain days. If they're, if they're a faithful Jew, it affects everything in their life. It is a cultural thing, not just a religious thing. So what Peter was doing was he was reaching out to say, let me start with where I know you are, because I'm one of you. I know where you are. I know what you honor. And let me tell you that the same thing that we have done for years, centuries, millennia, is now being fulfilled in this man, Jesus. And that's why when we jump down to verse 16, we hear him say, by faith in his name, the name of Jesus, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So let's just link those two verses, then we'll take care of the parenthetical statement in the middle. He says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. Now, just so I'm sure we all understand, this is not some kind of magical incantation. 
I know that some of you, I have been a part of it as well. There's a, a, a I don't know if they're still around, but there's a movement where you would get these green bumper stickers with white letters that just says the word Jesus on it. And you put it on your bumper. There is nothing wrong with that. Unless we think that somehow or another, magically, mystically, by having that name on our bumper, we'll never have a car accident. Or by putting it on a billboard, somebody's going to become a Christian. The gospel has got to be declared to people. They have to understand, we have to understand our sinfulness. We have to understand what Christ has done for us because of our sinfulness and how he offers us a relationship with his Father through faith in him. So when Jesus, excuse me, when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, what that means is in the authority of Jesus, on the authority of him. So when you go, well, for example, probably the best example in today's world would be an ambassador. You go to Dar es Salaam, you drive down Ambassador's Row, and you'll see a pretty decent, nice little house. It's not huge, but it's a pretty nice house with an American flag in front of it. That is the home of the ambassador. When the ambassador of the United States of America to the nation of Tanzania walks into the president's office and says, I have something to tell you from the president of the United States, he is speaking on the authority in the name of our president. As if the president himself were sitting in that room. Everything that, that's why it's so important that an ambassador guard his words very, very carefully. Because if he starts extrapolating and, and, and going overboard with it, He's going to be answerable. He's only to say what he's been told to say. So Peter says, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. Faith in his name. Faith that his authority also carries over to us. All right, so we all know what we mean by name. We don't mean just saying a name. We mean the authority that comes with that name. Now, in between those two verses, we have what's said about this Jesus. Let's go back and look at that. At the end of verse our second half of verse 13, it says, Whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, this is the second thing that Peter does. After he builds a bridge to say, hey, what's going on here is nothing new. It's a continuation of what we have looked for for generations. And we're going to see that again in just a second. But you chose not to accept the servant that God had sent to fulfill his covenant promise to his people. From Isaiah chapter 51, 52, 53, and other places. You rejected him. So he made them understand, or he led them to understand, the error that they had made in their lives. So here we have a God who has done what he was supposed to do. Now we have humanity, mankind, who has not done what they were supposed to do, which is to accept what God had offered. This is what you did. Instead of accepting it, you killed him. You handed him over. You denied him. You had him killed. Well, that's what you say. They knew they had. They knew who Jesus was. This is not years and years and years later. This was probably three months ago when this had happened, when Jesus had died. They remembered very well how they had hollered, Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar! But now look at what he says in verse 17. It comes kind of as a shock to some of us. He says, and, I, and now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. Sounds like he's giving them an out, doesn't it? Well, he's not really. Because if you're, you're like me, every time I say to my mama, but I didn't know, she'd say, what's the line? Anybody want to say it to me? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. 
That is classic courtroom reality. Just because you didn't know doesn't mean a crime has been committed. Now, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I want you to understand why Peter said what he did. And this is, this is a wonderful little addition to what's going on, and it's very important for us to understand. In the Old Testament, there were two kinds of sins. There were sins done in ignorance and sins done willfully. For a willful sin, there was no recourse. It was death. If you willfully, consciously chose to, to break God's law, premeditatedly, the only punishment, there was no offering for that. But if you sinned and didn't realize at the time, maybe you didn't realize how serious the consequences were of what you did. Maybe you didn't realize what, the, was gonna, what it was going to lead to or whatever. Then there was a recourse. There was an offering that you could bring, a sin offering that you could bring. And if you aren't fully convinced of that, let me just send me a text and I'll be glad to send you the references. But it makes it very clear that there is a remission for sins that are committed without a full understanding of the consequences of the sin. I guess our equivalent today would be someone who was not in their right mind. They didn't understand the consequences of what they did. So what Peter is doing is he's saying, look, you're guilty. There's no doubt about it. You denied him. You crucified him. You had him killed. You turned him over to Pilate. You chose a murderer instead. But because you didn't fully understand who he truly was, there is a way for you to find forgiveness. Now, isn't that good news? Are you still awake enough to know that's good news? Yeah, it is good news. Yes, you're guilty, but because you did not fully understand the consequences, there is a way out. And he says, what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled. See, he said, you were ignorant, but God wasn't. God used your ignorance, God used your rebellion, God used your sin to accomplish his purposes. And this is not one of my main points, but I'm just going to throw it in here because somebody may need to hear it. Just because your boss, your family member, your neighbor, your spouse is not treating you the way that they should and that is wrong, that does not mean that God is not still using it. What you have to do is humbly come to him and say, Lord, I do not know why I'm in this work situation, this family situation, this job situation, this, this, this neighborhood situation, but I'm trusting you that you will walk with me through this valley of darkness. Therefore, now, here comes, this is how I know he was a Baptist, he gave an altar call. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of restoration of all things. In other words, he's in heaven now. He is waiting, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets. And then he quotes Moses and other prophets from Samuel and those after him. And he says in verse 25, you are the sons of those prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and all his families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So God raised up his servant and, set, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Now, what do we, what do we draw out of this event and the explanation of the event? Let me just share with you several things. First of all, please note that Peter and John did not go to the temple to do a healing service. Peter and John did not go looking for a miracle to do. They went because it was what they do. It was just part of life. 
Not that it was by any means unimportant to them, but it was just part of the routine of life. They were just going about their normal things. And I say to you today, this is exactly the way that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, still works in the heart of believers today. There is nothing wrong with going somewhere with the premeditated purpose, prayerfully of hoping to be able to share the gospel with someone. But oftentimes, the Holy Spirit shows up in places where we do not expect him. And we need to just go about our normal life, but also prepared, aware that God may tap us on the shoulder, metaphorically speaking, and say, go over to that one and say these words. And at that instant, we have a Peter moment. We look at the person. They're sitting over there at the next desk. We know in our heart. We see that young mom with the two kids trying to get the groceries out to the, house, out to the car. And we're busy. We've got to get home and get dinner ready. We know in our heart we've got to do something. And in that instant, we have a crisis of belief. And if we respond in obedient and faithfulness, understanding that it's the Holy Spirit that has given Jesus' authority to us so that we can act on behalf of his name, we go out and we step out and we do what it is that he's told us to do. Secondly, please notice that in the process of that healing, Peter was not unimportant, even though it was not about him. In other words, God does the healing. God does the work, but he still works through us. He has chosen not to work without us. Could he? Of course he could. But he's just chosen not to, which means we have to understand that our role as disciples in this ecclesia is that we have been called together to, be, to learn what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of his, so then we can go out sharing in our lives and in our words what we have come to know to be the truth. Because every one of us has something that we can give to someone in need. Sometimes it is something material. Sometimes it is something temporal. But, but oftentimes, it's nothing that we can give them temporally, but we can give them something spiritually. We can offer to pray for them. We can offer to share how God has helped you in a similar situation. There, I'm not going to even try to enumerate all the ways. But please don't forget that he would not have called you to go to that person if he had not given you something that he wanted you to give them. Can I say that again, just to make sure we're all together? If he, didn't, if he had not given you something that he wanted you to give them, he would have never stirred you to go and talk to them or to, do, or to say something to them. So when you feel that unction and you say, you know, I just need to say something to this person. I need to encourage them or lovingly give them a, a word of, not really reprimand, that's too strong, but, but, but a word of, of, of wisdom. Well, but I don't know. They might get mad at me. Listen, if he had not given you something to say, he wouldn't have encouraged you to go say it. So go encourage what he's called you to do. When these changes begin to happen in people's lives, others will notice it. They'll notice that old snarky Bill in the office is suddenly becoming sweet Bill. And, they're wondering, and they know that, that y'all have been having lunch together, and they're going, what in the world did you tell Bill to change him? You say, look, I, not a thing I did. And you begin looking at the second half of this chapter. First of all, you find a way to link the person who asked you the question from where they are to where God is. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, what do you mean by that? All right, we're going to talk about this a lot in the next few weeks, but let me just kind of give you a two-sentence overview. What we do is we find out what is important in this person's life. What, what has meaning to them? And we help them see, now I'm not talking about the person who's had the life change. I mean, we're talking with them too. But I'm talking about the person who comes and says, hey, what in the world happened to Bill? Why is Bill so different now? What were y'all talking about at lunch the other day? I said, well, listen, listen, let me explain to you like this. And you start with something that's important to them. Let's say, for example, their kids are important. You know, I know you. You love your kids. Man, you would do anything for your kids. 
you would, you, would, you would give your life to save your kid's life, wouldn't you? Well, let me tell you something. God's the same way about his children. He loved us so much, he was willing to give up his own life for us to be able to have life. So what you've done is you've started where the person is and bridged them. That's exactly what Peter did when he said, the father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He was linking them from what they knew to what they needed to hear. Then, do not be afraid to lovingly but honestly share with them that all of us have sinned against God. All of us, by our actions, have become enemies of God. We have distanced ourselves through our... Now, you say that however you want to say it. Whether you read Romans 3.23 or Romans 6.23 or whether you talk about whatever. Any way that works for you, because God will give you the words. But, but they need to understand that even though God did this for us, we have distanced ourselves from him because of our selfish choices. But because we didn't truly understand the consequences of that, God has given us the opportunity to restore that relationship. He did that by sending his son to die for us, to pay the penalty for the things that we have done, to take the consequences of our poor decisions so that by accepting what he did, we can have a right relationship with God. He does that because he loves us and he understands that we didn't fully understand who he was in their lives. And say, but here's what's got to happen. You have to be willing to turn from following your own inclination to following God's inclination. Turn from, from doing what you think is best to what God thinks is best. Now, beloved, in about 10 minutes at the water cooler or over the coffee pot, you've just shared the gospel with a lost person. Now, do you have to say, now, why don't you come with me on, to church on Sunday? If that's what God leads you to do, you absolutely should do that. Sometimes you just stop the conversation right there and then walk away and let the Holy Spirit begin just putting that itch, you know? Just put that itch in them to want to know more, to ask more questions. David, like you and your buddy at work, he's come back and asked you more questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? This is the story, and this is how it lives out in our lives. So, how do we respond this movement, this movement that God is making and continuing to make and wants to make right here in us. He doesn't just want us to be an institution that has a whole list of hierarchies and committees and teams and this and that. Those are all fine as long as they're supporting the most important thing, which is us being living witnesses for Christ as his disciples and his followers out in the world where he has placed us. It's your breath in our lungs. It's your house that you let us buy. It's your job that you let us have. It's your children that you allowed us to birth. It's your woman or man that you allowed me to marry. And so everything comes under the lordship of Christ. And the way we respond to this movement is by saying, number one, I recognize the fact that Jesus has absolute sovereign authority over everything in my life and in my world. And so I live in the umbrella of his loving, caring grace in my life. So when I go out, I don't have to go out thinking, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say the wrong thing? You know what? God already knows what you're going to say before you say it. Hello? And so he's already planned. I don't like the chess analogy sometimes, but it's not a bad analogy. He's like the master chess player that already knows what you're going to move five moves later before you've even started because he's played that many games and knows how it works. God knows. So when you go feeling the unction of his spirit, the leadership of his spirit, to say something, to share something, to give a good word, he already knows and he will take it and use it. So you, in one sense, you can't say the wrong thing. 
It might be the wrong thing at the moment, but God has already planned to work with that and use it to his glory, Romans 8, 28. So what I'm asking you today to do is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to examine yourself and ask yourself, am I truly and completely a follower of Jesus Christ? I want you to take your comment card, your whatever you call that thing, connect card. I've got one down here somewhere. Best laid plans. There it is. At the bottom of your connect card, there's a little box. It says, my next step is two. On the left-hand side, one of them says, yield to the Holy Spirit's control of my life. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've surrendered Him as Lord and Savior, then guess what? The Holy Spirit was implanted in your life. But it doesn't mean that you're living with an awareness of His presence. I've told you the story before about the man for whose wife I did a funeral several years ago as a favor. Didn't know the family. They just needed somebody to do the funeral, and I said I would do it. Tried to sit down to get to know the woman a little bit by talking to her husband, her widower. And I said, so what was your wife's favorite food, favorite color, favorite TV show? Man had not a clue. Fifty-five years of marriage, he did not know her favorite color. He did not know her favorite food, anything chocolate. And we can live our lives as Christians living without a conscious sense of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And I want to invite you today to consider surrendering that part of your life over which the Holy Spirit has not got divine influence and yield so that He can control your life and do for you the same thing. You see, this story in Acts 3 is not about a crippled man becoming well. This is a story about a, a follower of Christ who had denied Him, who had been restored, and who now was learning how to trust Him. This is really a story about Peter. Actually, a story about Christ. But Christ's work in Peter. Secondly, if you are striving to release your life into the Holy Spirit's control each day, would you be willing to, starting tomorrow or this afternoon, to say, I will watch for chances to share whatever God puts on my heart with others? I couldn't put that in there because it was too long and it would have messed up the publisher document. So I just had to say, watch for chances to share with others. It doesn't necessarily mean share the four spiritual laws or, I mean, whatever God leads you to share. But just watch for chances. I can almost guarantee you, I'd love, I'll wait, we get to heaven, we'll ask Peter. Peter, that afternoon, did you know, did you have in your heart that maybe you were going to meet somebody? And Peter goes, I had no clue. I was just going to pray. Maybe share the good news of Jesus with the people there in the temple courtyard, but I didn't expect this to happen. But I was ready for whatever God had for me to do. Now, the third thing on that left hand, or actually the last thing on that left hand column, is one that we're going to talk about more in the weeks to come. Because if you look back to the end of chapter 1 of Acts, and then again at the end of chapter 2, you find the way in which Peter was able to be prepared for the work that happened in chapter 3. And it was giving himself to prayer. Deeply committed to prayer. Now, when I say deeply committed, does that mean they prayed 18 hours a day? No, not necessarily. But I've got to guarantee you that if they had never experienced the Holy Spirit's presence, and all of a sudden they had this presence in them, they were spending a lot of time talking to God. Okay, now, I need to make sure I understand you know, and if you have had those experiences where you have sensed God's presence with you, the Spirit's presence with you, protecting you, guiding you, correcting you, supporting you, comforting you, then you know what it does. It draws you to prayer. Am I wrong? It draws you to talk to Him. 
And so, as you reach out in prayer, he begins to take more and more control of your life. And so the bottom thing on that left-hand column is to commit more of my time to prayer. It may mean a few minutes in the morning before you go to work. It may mean a few minutes in the evening before you turn out the light and go to sleep. It may mean during your lunch break or during a coffee break during the day. It may mean while you're commuting. Turn off the music. Sometimes it's even good to turn off Joy FM every now and then. I'm not saying anything wrong with Joy FM, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it's good to turn it off and say, Lord, I can listen to, yeah, later. I just need to talk to you right now. Commit more time in prayer. But what if you're not a Christ follower yet? What if you know a lot about God, but you've never really surrendered your life to Him? Well, the top one on the left and right side is for you. Well, actually, the top one on the left side is for you. Because this is the first step, is to trust Him enough to release your life into His hands. Take what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, allow God to apply it to your life, surrender to Him as Lord and Savior, acknowledge what you have come today to believe to be true. You see, faith is not believing in something you can't prove. Faith is believing in something that the evidence has convinced you is right. You've seen your life. You know how difficult it's been. You've heard, and something in you has said, this is right. This is the right thing. That's that prevenient grace of God's Holy Spirit drawing you to say, okay, I believe, I will trust, and I will put my life in Christ's hands. If you're willing to do that today, you can mark that. And if you'd like for me to give you a call or something, just right on the back of your connect card, Pastor, please call me. There are other things on the right-hand column that you may want to be a part of as well. Maybe you're a believer, but you've never followed him in obedience and been baptized. Maybe you need to join a Bible study group. Maybe you need to be involved in some other ministries. But in just a moment, we're going to sing together, because I want to give you an opportunity to come and pray. But then the ushers are going to come, and we're going to receive our offering. And that's when I want you to put this card into the offering basket. Every one of us. To put your card in the basket. And that way, Pastor Daryl and Pastor Greg and I can be praying for you about these commitments that you're making. We are men who believe in the power of prayer. I wish I prayed more. I'll be marking the bottom left-hand box. But let us commit together to pray for one another. And let's watch the Holy Spirit move in power in our midst. Would you like to see that happen? Yes, so would I. So, Father, in this moment, as we prepare to respond, we're going to take a couple of minutes for those of us that feel led of you to make that response public. Maybe there's a reason why we need to do that. Others of us are just going to mark our card and then drop it in the basket. But, Father, the the key is that in this moment, we need to do exactly what Peter told those folks to do. We need to see where we need to repent. Even those of us who are followers need to repent. We've trusted ourselves that are trusting your spirit. We've not let him fill us and guide us and lead us and empower us. We've not gone out with your, with your son's authority in our lives. We've either tried to go out with our own authority or we've not gone out at all into our world. Father, we've not spent enough time in communion with you in prayer. 
Father, whatever it is you're leading us to do today, I pray that we will, with absolute openness to you, mark on that card what it is we need to do today. Place it in the basket in just a few minutes and let that be our response. In Jesus' name.